Join me, if you will, in, the, in, the, in your Bibles in the book of Matthew, chapter 10. We've been kind of moseying through Matthew, uh, taking our time, not getting in any, any rush. I've enjoyed it. 30-something years pastoring, and I've, I've preached a lot of, and, and I, I love to preach through a book or a study or something. Um, in all the years, I've never, this is the first time I've preached this chronologically through Matthew. So uh, I've been enjoying it. I've been really excited. Um, and I hope, you've, hope God's been speaking to your heart and, and just bringing things to your memory that maybe you had forgotten or maybe you hadn't even seen before as we go through it. We're, we'd finished chapter nine last week and we were talking about how that Jesus looking out on the congregation, looking out on, on the multitudes, and what he saw was he saw the needs. Matter of fact, scripture says that he saw the people as sheep without a shepherd. And it, it moved him. Matter of fact, scripture says that, it, that moved with compassion. Jesus' heart was stirred with compassion as he saw the great need and he saw the great potential. We talked about that, <clears throat> excuse me, last week. But as, as, he, as he saw that, as his heart was moved, then he, he says to his disciples, now I want you to pray. In the last part of chapter nine, he says, I want you to, the, the harvest is really great. The laborers are few. Now, look at this last verse. He says, pray ye therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Two things that just really stood out to me as we transition into chapter 10. First of all, is that it's, it's God who sends the laborers. Pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers. And notice what, not only that, but notice that it's his harvest. It's his harvest. As God looks out and sees the world, it's love that, dri that drove him, motivated him. It's John three sixteen says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So as Jesus uh, tells his disciples to pray that God would send laborers into the harvest, his harvest. As we go into chapter 10, I want you just to, we're, we're going to look at it. And it says, and when he had called, when Jesus had called unto him, his 12 disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Now the names of the 12 apostles that he called are these. The first Simon called Peter, Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew the publican, James the son of Alphaeus and Lebes, the surname was Thaddeus. Simon the Canaanite and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles and into any city of the Samaritans, enter ye not. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely you have received, freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver nor brass in your purses nor script for your journey, neither two coats, neither shoes, nor yet staves, for the workman is worthy of his meat. And into whatsoever city or town you shall enter, inquire who in it is worthy, and there abide till you go thence. And when you come into a house, salute it. And if the house be worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it be not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whosoever shall not receive you nor hear your words, when you depart out of that house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. 
Now, Father, may your Holy Spirit take your word and, Lord, speak it to our hearts, speak it into our hearts, into our minds, into our lives. Lord, to do what you want to do in us this morning, we pray in Christ. Amen. Notice what Jesus, I I love this. He tells them to pray, the Lord of the harvest, that he'd send laborers. Then Jesus calls these these 12 that he names. And as he calls them, he he gifts them and equips them. And then what does he do? He sends them out. Verse, Verse five says, these 12 then Jesus sent forth and commanded them. The mission was very clear. He commanded them what? Go. Go, go to the, here he tells them to go to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, other places, and we know in Matthew 28, after Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, that the word was to go ye therefore into all the world and to preach the gospel. But here, the first time that we have this, as he sent these out, is he tells them, goes specifically now, now just, just go to the Jewish, go to the Jews. Different reasons of why he would do that. Uh, But one thing I want us to just realize is that the mission was very clear that they're to go. And you and I are to go. Everywhere we go, we're to keep the command, the mission in in, in mind, and that's to go. The second thing is that notice the message. In verse 7 and in verse 8, the message was that they were to proclaim the kingdom of heaven was at hand and they were to verify that by miracles and signs and wonders that accompanied them. And to the Jewish nation, these 12 was to proclaim the Messiah that the prophets foretold would come is here. And that, uh, and to verify that all the things that the prophet said that the Messiah would do was being done. And they wanted their, their ears to be open. He wanted them to hear and to see and to receive this message that he sent them out with. As I was looking at that this week, uh, the mission was clear, the message was plain, but it was the last part of verse 8 that really just captivated me, and that's the motive. That's the motive. Look at this. Jesus says, okay, this is my command, go. This is what you're to preach. But then at the end of verse 8, that last little phrase, he says, freely you have received, freely give. And I'm thinking, Wow. What, what is it, what, what was it that they, that, that they had, what was, what was it that was going to motivate them, that, was gonna, that he wanted them to keep foremost in their minds that as they went forth with this message on the mission that he had sent them on? And I thought about it. What, what had they had received? Well, obviously, they had received mercy. They had received forgiveness. They had received grace. Grace, so much. Matter of fact, it's Ephesians 2, 8, 9. says, for by grace are you saved through faith? It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast about it. Someone has said that mercy is not receiving what we deserve, but grace is receiving that which we do not deserve. And God had truly, this, this group of men, as we, as we look at his gifting to them and his equipping them, that these disciples, these laborers in his harvest, 
had been, had been sent out with a message, and the message was to be driven by the motive that God's grace, that God's love, that God's forgiveness, that God's mercy is so real in their lives. They had been recipients of that grace. And now he says to them, with that in mind and keeping that always in mind, you go and you be grace givers too. Freely you have received, freely give. There are two truths about grace that I want to share this morning, and they're, um, they're, I thought about them when I thought about Leroy Taylor. Oftentimes, Leroy, as he prays for the offering, and I've heard him say several times, God loves you, ain't nothing you can do about it. God loves you, ain't nothing you can do about it. And, and I thought about that. There's two, there's two things about grace. One is that God loves us, and there's nothing that we can do to make him love us more. Second thing is that God loves us and there's nothing we can do to make him love us less. For God is love. And when he sees us, as he saw the multitudes, he sees the need. He sees the potential. He sees the opportunity. And with that, his heart of compassion is stirred. And he sends forth laborers. And he sends forth you and I as laborers into the field. We talked about it last week where there is the opportunity, as Jeff shared in the bulletin, for the Bible camp volunteers. Oh, it takes two or three hundred volunteers to make that to make camp run and function. And you do awesome as you pour yourself into that ministry. That's one of the reasons that the camp, I believe that God honors it, is because it's a mission of the church. It's not Jeff and Sarah's mission. It's not a slave. It's the mission of the church. You pour yourself into that. Whether it's the camp, whether it's vacation Bible school, whether it's helping Herbie at the cottage, whether it's helping the, those at Elijah's closet, whether it's volunteering as a Sunday school teacher, in everything you do, whether it's an upward coach, whether it's a, just a serving refreshments, whatever it is, as he sends us forth as laborers, he tells us, remember the mission. Remember the mission. Remember the message. Everything we do, we do as, as with the objective in mind of sharing Christ's love, of sharing the salvation, the gift that he's, he's given us so freely through his son. And we're motivated by that grace that we have received. We're motivated by that mercy and by that peace and by that forgiveness. Thinking about that, there's, two, there's some, a few things that, that I believe that grace produces in us. Grace produces grace. And the first thing I believe that grace produces in us as we, as we remember that and as we're driven by that and as we keep that in our mind, wherever we go, whether it's to camp, whether it's across the street, whether it's just taking a, a casserole to a family that's, that's in need. The first thing is this, is that grace produces a grateful heart. Grace produces a grateful heart. And, and a couple examples, but, but surely one of the best examples in all of Scripture is found in Luke chapter 7. And it's quite, it's, it's, it's quite long, but in Luke chapter 7, this is a situation. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus if he would come and have a meal with him. And Jesus went to the Pharisee's house and he sat down to the meal. It says, and behold, and I, and I like this, and, and, and it says, and my goodness, and behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe with the hairs of his head his feet and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Hang on right here. Just, just, they would have been, they would have been, they would have been kind of reclining table below table. Their feet would have been away from the table. And this woman comes in. Obviously, she's not on the, she's not on the guest list. 
uh, and, and the, the scripture uh, the, the, the identifies her, her as a sinner. Matter of fact, we're going to see that just in a minute. But she comes in and, and it's, it's like the elephant in the room. Okay? Everybody's sitting, eating. Jesus, they're talking, they're talking. All of a sudden, this woman comes in and the woman is known widely by her reputation. She's not a nice person. And she comes in and while they're trying to focus on what's going on here, she comes in and she weeping with her tears washes the feet of Jesus and, and abandons. She has lost all sense of public decorum and what's supposed to take place and not take place. And, and with her hair down, she's drying his feet. Oh! Now, the host, of the, the host of the meal, the next verse... Now, when the Pharisee which had bidden him, this was a host. When the, when the man of the house saw it, he's thinking. He spake with him. So he's thinking. He's probably thinking, how did she get in here? And this is what he's thinking. This man, if he was really a prophet, then he would know what kind of woman this is that touches him because she's a sinner. She's a sinner. Now, now, don't you when, you, when you, when you read thoughts like that, and you read, read sections like that, don't it just, makes me want to puke. Such smugness, such, such self-righteousness, until I realize some of my own attitudes. And then I say, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. This man was thinking, she has no place in here with us. She's not, she's not one of us. She's not even close to being one of us. What's she doing in here? Wow. What are we doing in here? Jesus then responds to the man's thoughts. And he answers and he says to Simon, Simon, I've got something I'd like to, talk, I'd like to say to you. Now, I can imagine that Simon's going to say, Okay, he's wanting us to get rid of her. He's wanting to say this woman is messing up the whole meal. She's, she, he's, he's, he's wanting to say, Simon, did you invite her in here? Don't you know? Here, this, is where he, this is where he's going to reveal that he is a prophet, and he's going to tell me how bad, and he's going to put her in her place, and we're going to go in with the meal. And instead, he puts Simon in his place and all of us in our place. And Simon says, okay, Lord, tell me that. You know, and Jesus could have said, he, he, could, Simon could have thought, he's going to brag on the fillets. He's going to talk about the meal and the layout. He's going to talk about the ambiance, the atmosphere. He's going to talk about the house. Jesus wants to talk about the heart. And Jesus, Simon says, okay, Lord, what, what do you want to tell me? And Jesus gives him this illustration. It says there are a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed him 500 and the other owed him 50 pence. I don't know. How, how much does a new translation say? Put that in dollars and cents. I don't know what pences are. Except Mike Pence, and he's a, isn't he the vice president? <laughs> how much, how much new translation? 50, 50, 500 pence, what is that? Huh? 500 what? 500 pieces of silver. <clears throat> All right, let's just say, I, I, you know, paraphrase, I don't know, let's say they owed him, he owed him $50,000, one owed him $50,000, one owed him $5,000. Now, that's, please don't get offense at that. I don't know how much it is, I should have looked up. All right, <clears throat> one owes him a bunch, and the other one owes him some too, Okay. He says, all right, and he says, and when they had nothing to pay. Now, look at this. It didn't say when they couldn't pay him. 
I mean, we'd think, well, well, maybe they had some, maybe they had enough to, 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 to put him off. Maybe they had enough to say, let's pay you this much on what I owe you. Maybe the guy who owed him 50,000 said, listen, I've, I've got, I've got 5,000. Let me pay you 5,000 and then I'll make payments, put it on installments. Maybe the one that owed him 5,000 said, listen, I've got 500. Let me give you that. But Jesus says, these two creditors, these two debtors came before the, the, the one that they owed and they had nothing. They had nothing. Kind of reminds me of the scripture in Isaiah <clears throat> where the prophet says that all, we shall, you know, that, that all our sins, all our sins are like filthy rags. And we had nothing to pay for our forgiveness. We had nothing to pay for grace. We had nothing to pay for mercy. We didn't have something good. We had nothing. And Jesus says to Simon, to Simon, he says, hey, the guy that owed him 50,000, the guy that owed him 5,000, and they didn't have anything to pay, and he frankly forgave them both. Now tell me, therefore, which one of them loved him the most? <clears throat> and I can imagine Simon saying, well, that's, that's pretty simple. I thought this was going to be hard, difficult question. That's pretty simple. The one who owed him 50,000. Now, if I'm sitting there and I'm thinking about the one who owed 5,000, if I'm the one that owed 5,000, I'm thinking, Man, why didn't I go deeper in debt? If he's going to forgive this debt, I could, I, I could have went 45,000 more. Yeah? But, but he said, the one, who, the one who he forgave the most. And Jesus said to him, Simon, you've, you've uh, rightly judged. And then he brings it home. Then Jesus turned to the woman. And he probably, he probably says, he probably says, he turns and looks at her and to Simon. Simon, see this woman? See this woman? Sure, Simon had seen her. He had seen her for who the world saw her as. He had seen her as a sinner. He had seen her as an interrupter of his nice meal. He had seen her as someone who had crashed the party. He had seen her as someone who obvious, obviously didn't know how she was her place and didn't know how she was to act. Let her hair down in public. What a shameful display. Simon had seen all these things. But when Jesus saw her, he saw something completely different, didn't he? He saw a heart. He said, Simon, I entered your house and you, you didn't give me water for, to wash my feet with, but she's washed my feet with, the, with her tears and dried them with her hair. You, you didn't kiss me. This woman, since I've come in, has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with this expensive ointment. I say to thee, to Simon, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And then he turns to the woman and he says, your sins are forgiven. Well, ah, the rest of them, the rest of them, and they that sit there with him begin to say with themselves, who does he think he is that he can forgive sins? I mean, a meal with Jesus is a, is a dining experience, but, but more than that, it's a, it's, it's, it's a divine education, right? Because now he's saying, are you seeing? Remember last week we talked about seeing with his eyes? He said, are you seeing what's happening here? Too many times we see what's happening, but we don't see what's happening. You know what I'm saying? And, 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 and they thought, well, who can, who, who's he to forgive sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Here is a woman that has 
receive the grace, the mercy, the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Here is a woman that we don't, we don't know what motivated. She just heard that Jesus was there having a meal. We don't know if it, what had happened necessarily before that. But we know that motivated by a heart of needing to get to him, by a heart of loving him, by a heart of abandoning everything, by a heart that was not going to be intimidated or ashamed or, or, or uh, embarrassed out of meeting her Savior, she comes and, and worships and washes his feet and dries his feet. Motivated by grace. What a, what a heart, a grateful heart. Another example I think of is, it's not a scriptural example, but it's, it's the guy who wrote the song Amazing Grace. We're, we're singing a lot of songs this morning about grace. It's John Newton. There's on a slave ship uh, uh, and, and a great storm comes up. And listen to what he talks about, a grateful heart. First and third stanzas, he said, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. His grace has brought me safe thus far. His grace will lead me home. Grace produces grace and a thankful heart. Second thing that just stood out, stands out to me when he says we've received freely, freely is that when grace produces grace, it produces, it creates a generous heart. A generous heart. Think about it. Jesus Christ died for my sins and for your sins. He didn't just give his time. He gave it. He didn't just give a, a portion. He gave everything. He gave his life for you and for me. I, I, that, that, that generosity, it's hard to be explained. Ed Higgins, remember last week, I think it was Todd Christensen last week was giving us a word from Ed Higgins. <clears throat> and I think about Ed when he would come up and pray for the offering. He would say, God loves a cheerful giver. What kind of cheerful giver? And I was thinking about, I was looking at, this, at the scripture in, in 2 Corinthians, where that comes from, and I ran across something else. I want you to look at it with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and, and I've asked him to put it up in the New Living because it just really, it, it captivated me the way it says it. It says, remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds is going to get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide, he's telling Paul is telling the, the, the Christians there in Corinth, you must each decide in your heart how much you're going to give. Don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. In other words, when you, as you're giving your offering to the Lord, don't be pressured into it. Don't, don't look over and see how much somebody else or don't get, the, get them peeking over your shoulder. You, you decide. But he said, but whatever you give, give it gladly because God loves a person who gives cheerfully. God loves a cheerful giver. Some translations there have God loves a hilarious <laughs> giver. I love that. Ha! Look, look what I get to do, Lord, for you. Somebody sends out a challenge that $1,000 to buy 1,000 Bibles, and they're going to match that. It'll be 2,000 Bibles, and that'll be 2,000 lives that's going to be touched that may be in eternity because there was a Bible provided free for them. You know, that's generous. But, but go, look, look at what else it says here in Corinthians. He says, and God will generously provide 
all you need, then you will always have everything you need. I, I was just blown away with this verse in, in, in the New Living Translation here. 2 Corinthians 9, 8. God will generously provide what? All. All you need. Then you will, how often? Always have what? Everything. Oh my goodness. Are you kind of getting the picture that God is, a, God is completely able to do exceedingly and abundantly above what we even ask or think? That God wants us to see that he can provide where he sends, he will guide and he will provide? Wow. I, I, no wonder as we... As you think back to the section in Matthew, Jesus is sending the mission, the mission statement, go. The message proclaimed that the kingdom of God is here, then back it up by the, by the miracles and signs and wonders. And the motive is to be grace. You've, you've freely received it, now freely give it. But then the next part is he tells them. Now, he says, don't take a bunch of extra money. Don't even take an extra, extra coat. Don't have to take extra you know, staff. Now, other times he will tell them they need to do that. But here he says, and don't take a thing. I was reading that and I'm thinking, why would he do that here? You know why? Because I think he wanted them to understand this concept that when he sends us, he's already gone before and he can provide all we need that we always will have everything that we need when we're doing what he tells us to do. Now, I mean, that's, that's, that's God's word. It's either true or it ain't. All right? And I'm not telling you to presume upon God and tell God what you need. I'm just saying, look at his word. When we walk in obedience to his word, he provides. And then, I love this. He said, you always have everything you need. Now, look at this now. And plenty left over to share with others. As the scripture said, say, they share freely and give generously to the poor. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. For God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat. Look at this now. In the same way, he will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great, I've never noticed a great harvest of what? Generosity in you. In you. Wow. Wow. A heart that has been touched by grace is grateful, but a heart that has been touched by grace is very generous in giving. Not all of our resources and time, but giving of ourselves. Thirdly, when grace produces grace, we have a grateful heart, we have a generous heart, but I believe also we have a God-fearing heart. A God-fearing heart. Now, the inspiration behind John Newton writing Amazing Grace, I told you he was on a ship, bad storm. Looked like they was going to be, looked like they was going to lose everything and everyone. Later, in reflecting upon this time, John Newton would share, and this is what he would say. He would say, as an unsaved sinner, I cried out to God, but I knew my sins were too great to be forgiven. And I thought I was doomed. Wow. In a song, he put it this way. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace my fears really. Now, I know that 
the love of, of the love of God, the love of Christ, can be a, a tremendous catalyst, bringing people to faith in Christ when they when they see how much He loves them. Edwin Messersmith, our, my good friend, Edwin, share as a teenage boy growing up in in Wisconsin or Minnesota, as a teenage boy that it was, he was 16 years old for the, before he ever heard the gospel. And at 16 years old, he heard for the first time, somebody shared that Jesus Christ loved him so much that he died on the cross for his sins. And Edward said he was, he was, at that point, he was arrested by the thought that somebody would love him enough to die for him. And Edwin, you know, in his German staunch way, said, I reasoned, and I can just see him now, I reasoned that if somebody loved me enough to die for me, surely I could love him enough to live for him. You know? So I know that, that the love of Christ can be a tremendously uh, catalyst in bringing us to, to, to faith in him. But I also know that as a nine-year-old boy, as a nine-year-old boy, I, I, it wasn't the love of Christ. I knew Jesus loved me. I was, I was raised in the House of Prayer Church. I understood that. Vacation Bible schools, had been to Bible camp. But it was a message I heard on Friday night of heaven and hell. And it was a realization at nine years old that if I died, I had to go to one of those two places. And that heaven wasn't created for good people. But that heaven was created as a place for all who received God's gift of eternal life where they could spend eternity with him. And that if, we had not, if, we, if I had rejected God's gift... Of his son, if I, if, I, if I had not received that gift, if I had not received his son as my savior, then I left God, the holy God, no choice. That it wasn't God who was sending me to hell, is I would send myself to hell by refusing to accept his gift. And I was scared of dying and go to hell. So I know that fear of God can be a strong motivator. Because I didn't want to die and go to hell. I think... Um, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says, Wherefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now even more so in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I was reading this week about this, and I read across a, a, a quote by Oswald Chambers. Now, he's, he, he does devotions, right? I, I had never, and he, I like a lot of his stuff, but I had never heard this one. Oswald Chambers says, the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas, if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. Wow. I read that and I, and I read it again. <laughs> the remarkable thing about fearing God is when you fear God, you fear nothing else. How does... How, does, how do these men and women go into these places where so dangerous? They go as God commands and as God directs. And as one missionary said, they're invincible until God says it's time. It's the same. It's the same with you here. You don't, you don't stay safe. Jesus, we understand more and more what Jesus says is that they who would protect their life will lose it, but those who, would, those who would give their life will gain it. We understand more and more, right? 
You, you can't say, I'm, I'm not going to the mission field. I'm not going where it's dangerous. Oh, I'll pray for you. I'll give you money to go. But Lord, don't, you know, don't, I, I ain't going to go there. I'm going to stay here where it's safe. Where it's safe. Where it's safe. You know where it's safest? Barbie and I used to, we, we it, for years, I grew up, had, had heard this taught, believed it. In the center of God's will. In the center of God's will. Now, I, I don't know, I'm trying to figure, I don't know if that center of God's will is written that way in scripture, but I know that it's true because I know when we're talking about that is that in the center of God's will is exactly where he wants you to be when he wants you to be there. Okay? And, uh, and, and, and I believe that, and then, there, then, then Barbie and my, and my faith was put to test. And that's okay. A faith that's never been tested can't be trusted. Okay? And, and uh, we, great, Guidance counselor, Barbie's working in the school system. We just, had our, we just started our family. We had built a house. And God says, I want you to, I want you to go. To, I want you to go. I want you to go here. Raise support. Go there. West Coast, San Francisco. That was as heathen as it come to me in, in 1970. You know, it's as heathen as it could, could come. And he says, go. And I said, okay, I'll ask the school for a sabbatical. Well, they laughed at me. <laughs> yeah, see ya. Big boy, you've been great. Been fun. Awesome. Have fun. You're going to where and why? Have you ever tried to tell unsaved people what it's like, Glenn, to obey the Lord? I, I, remember a good, I remember a good friend of ours, and he looked at us. He looked at Barbie's holding Paige. She was just a newborn baby. Wasn't as old as Tirza, but, but Barbie's holding her. And I remember this good friend, good Christian friend. He said, brother, you have misread the stars. <laughs> but when you fear God... You don't have to be afraid of anything else. You go in obedience and you marvel at his provision. That's grace. That's grace. As grace produces grace within us, produces a grateful heart, produces a generous heart, it produces a God-fearing heart. And the result is, I believe it produces a heart that is filled with Jesus Christ. Because John 1.17 puts it this way. John 1.17 just sums up. And, I, you know, I, I, don't you love those messages that go for 30 minutes? And at the end, you say, well, it just summed it up in one sentence. And you say, huh, preacher, if you'd said that to start with, we could all been eaten by now. John 1.17 says it. Look at this. For law, the law was by Moses, but grace and truth, grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And the disciples as he sent them forth as laborers. And you and me, as he sends us forth as laborers, he sends us forth to freely give that which we freely receive, and that's Jesus Christ. With a grateful heart, with a generous heart, fearing him. It's, it's appropriate. I, I don't know. I just, uh, I had, we had to sing in, in the red hymnal. Now, if we go to the nursing home, when we go to, I love it. I've made that mistake so many times. I'm not, I didn't laugh. I'm the only one that didn't laugh. When your face turned red, and even my little granddaughter sitting there, and she just put her head, hands over her face. She was blushing for you. Okay, but I've, I've made that enough times. I'm not going to, I would never call anybody's attention to what happened, Jeff. But when we go, <laughs> but when we go to the, we go to the nursing home Wednesday, and we'll say, uh, let's sing Amazing Grace. Somebody will say, that is page what? 
Huh? What page? 57. You know that. Some of you say, well, I thought it was 57. I was going to say, I did too. 57 in the red hymnal. Let's stand. Now, let me, let me just tell you. First service. First service, we had to restart the song. <laughs> we really did. We're here singing about the grace, amazing, miraculous, transforming grace of Jesus Christ. And, and you know how we were singing? We were singing like we was afraid if our neighbor heard us and we were afraid we might be a little bit off key. And we were, we were, we were, we were singing like we didn't want to wake up granddaddy that was in the bed next to us. Amazing grace. And we just had, I had, we had to stop. I thought, you got to be kidding me. So for them, we had to visualize you and God, nobody else matters. When you have been touched by his grace, when you have received his mercy, when you have received his forgiveness, when you have received his peace that no amount of money can buy, that no amount of work can earn, it's freely given. And when we receive that, well, I got that. When we have received that, man, and he says, okay, now, now go freely give that. Wow. All right. So you got to got the picture here. I don't want to start this song a second time here this morning with this. 57 Amazing Grace, Mildred. You better out sing me because I'll probably be off key. Don't worry about it. I'm just enjoying it. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved us. singing all the verses of that song. Uh, and I, I love, I love Luther's. I need to explain that. I've, 
my experience, they have songs and they have the verses in them I've never seen and they sing them all. So it was just, you can't leave all these things out. Uh, this is awesome. The truth of God's grace, it's amazing. Let it motivate you. Let it be, a, let it be that that drives you and drives me. Whether it's, whether it's whatever we do this afternoon, whether it's whatever we do next week, freely you have received that which God gives us that we don't deserve. Grace, freely give that. Grace receivers should be grace givers. Go with the Lord.